HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Foster Sundry, a specialty grocery located in Bushwick, Brooklyn. This week on Meet and 3, it's our season four finale, and we're sharing some of our greatest kitchen joys. Maybe most people consider making it too much work or too messy, but this is the food that's worth the work and worth the wait. You always know where the thing is because you put it away the right way the first time. You just sort of stand there and, you know, with your hand on your hip and one leg outstretched, less wine in your hand, staring into the refrigerator going, okay, speak to me. Oh, yeah. What are you doing with the celery tonight? I'm making a simple syrup for a gin cocktail with the celery. And I also found a recipe for a celery soup that's going to use up the celery and the potatoes and some of that dill that we still have hanging out in there. (laughs) Tune in and be inspired to find the joy in your kitchen. And don't forget to subscribe to Meat in 3 wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to the Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Alice Firing. We'll talk to Alice about, quote, natural wine and her new book, Natural Wine for the People. We'll taste a pet nat that Alice brought in from the Loire for our weekly wine sip. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. And I finally have somebody across from me that really appreciates our show slogan. We bring wine to the people. All right, Alice Firing, when we talk about natural wine and the natural wine movement, Alice Firing is an OG. Alice is a leading voice, advocate, and expert on natural wine and the natural wine movement. Alice is a James Beard award-winning journalist and author of seven books, Her website, The Firing Line, has been serving natural wine enthusiasts since 2004. Alice, welcome to the show. Welcome back to the show. Yes, it's great to be back. Alice was on with Pascaline Le Peltier. They had written a book, The Dirty Guide to Wine. 
and really got into the dirt about that. We did. Um, and Alice has a new book, which we're going to talk about. But Alice, while I have you here, <clears throat> I want to talk about who you are. I want, I want to give people a little context, and I also want to get your take on natural wine, and then we'll spend um, time on the book. So give us a little background on your journey in life and wine that got you to where you are today, which is Alice Firing, her seventh book, continuing with the firing line. Yeah. Hmm. Where were we? Well, we certainly didn't pop out of the womb wanting to be a wine writer the way it seems a lot of people want to do today. Uh, True. But I, you know, I didn't have a family that had a wine background. It was Manischewitz or... Um, Carmel, extra sweet. And from there, it went to Lancers and Matus. And from there, I don't know, do you want me to, how, do you want me to just start where it started? Well. Or that aha moment when I realized wine was, okay, we're going to give you the very, very brief history. Give me the brief. I'm very, I'm particularly interested in, we said this off air, on the moment that you realized wine was something important to you. And then further evolved the natural wine right. thing. There was. I'm very curious about that moment. Okay, we'll hit the, those three marks. I think it's um, <clears throat> it's relevant and both shocking that I was raised as an Orthodox Jew. So that's funny. It was also you know, 1950s, 1960s. Jewish household was really kind of um, not exactly a gastronome. Uh, Era. It was frozen. Eastern was European? Just, yeah, it, totally. So that food is... My a, mother was a good cook, but right. it was probably the reason that I stopped eating meat when I was 16. Okay. But I was always an ingredient reader because I had to find out whether it everything was kosher if I was eating out. So I think from the time I could read, I picked up a package and read the ingredients. So we'll just shelve that, put it in the back of the mind. Um, I... Did find Lancers and Matus and it, when I was 17 at Fonsi's, and not, uh, not a natural wine bar, not by any stretch of the imagination, a wine bar in Baldwin, Long Island. I said, oh, this stuff is pretty good. I moved to Cambridge to be in graduate school. I started Cambridge, Mass. Massachusetts. Right. Uh, my roommate was in the wine business, and we had wine tastings in our apartment twice a week. And I really liked what it was going on. I would speed taste so I could spend the night with the wine that I loved best before anybody else got there. Got very good. What does that mean? You'd go through quickly to identify what meant something and then yeah. spend the time with that. Mm-hmm. And I hate to at, repeat, but that's at what that I point I was just I wasn't looking to learn. I was looking to find out what I liked and to drink. Mm-hmm. You know, it just we somehow don't talk about drinking as much, but I wanted to find out what gave me the pleasure and to spend the night with it. Then I was in school for dance therapy. I went back to my writing. I decided I had to move back to New York after a decade to pursue writing. At that point, I started pitching stories about something I felt I knew about, which was wine and design and food. It's funny, I, I did, I probably because I tell the stories so often, I forgot about that moment, that wine. And that wine was a 1969 Barolo from Scanavino that my father's mistress's husband, well, actually, she told me to go and raid his cellar, and I was too embarrassed, and I only took three bottles. I should have cleared out the whole thing. Yeah, really. And the wine was just gorgeous, and that was the wine that made me realize, aha, we got something very different going on here. This is a whole other world of complexity and fascination. So 
that was the turning point for me. Go to New York, still, I want to know about one. I want to I keep on learning, learning, learning. You can do that extraordinarily well in New York. And I get my first book to write. The Food and Wine Magazine Official Wine Guide. I was recommended for it. I was still writing about other things. I had no intention to solely write about wine. And a piece of advice to anybody out there, if that's your goal, uh, you're really... I hope you've got a trust fund or a really great rent-stabilized apartment or just really can live on next to nothing because it is a fool's wish. Okay. Good okay. advice. Let's go on from there. During that book, Wait, it was... how do you make a living as a wine writer? You have a second job, right? right? There you go. Exactly. Or you marry rich right. or something. I didn't do any of that. Right. It's the old Jewish way. Right. So... Writing that book in the year was 2001. The wines were at the height of parkerization. It was the height of really the, the death of wine. And I found a little particular place in the world, the, well, the wines from the Louis Dresner portfolio that I liked. And I could not figure out why every single one of those wines really was hitting all the marks that made me realize this is what I loved about the wines when I started learning about them in the late 70s and the early 80s. They just spoke of place, and they were honest. So I went backwards, and I just realized that I did my research. It was organic viticulture. It was native yeast fermentation. I thought the problem had been just new wood that was toasty. I did not know about the whole range of 72 additives that you could put in wine, nor did I know about reverse osmosis and microoxid, uh, designer yeast, and all those things, that actually I wrote that story for the New York Times in 2001. So you're talking around 2001, right? Mm -hmm. So before that, you weren't aware of how no. manipulated wine was. No, not and at all. just a couple of things. Louis Dresner was one of the first, or the first all-natural wine. Right, and even port. he had a progression. He, he started going... Uh, with a focus on natural around 99, 2000. Before that, he just had wine. Right. And then it all started changing underneath us. And as there were more, you know, I use this quote quite often, the more there's fake, the more we need real. And that quote comes from Baldo Capilano, and it is exactly what was happening. I th had been selecting wine, before that book, wines that were natural. It was my palate, though I didn't know how to call it natural. Going back, I remember I, I, one of my favorite wines, it was a $3 wine Prodicet. It was Corbiere. And it was only years later that I went back and researched, and it was a thoroughly natural wine. So for some reason, I had good taste memory, and I found that. You identified but what identified was important it to you. When I had taste. to identify it, when it was about to disappear. At that time, I didn't really call it natural, neither did anybody. I was calling it the search for, for traditional wine. And that is what I based the first book on, The Battle for Wine and Love, or how I save the world from parkerization. Right. So I was looking for traditional wines that were natural. So that was basically, so why, Manishtana, why did I become a wine writer? Because I had, I've, none of my colleagues were telling the story. I wasn't just telling people what to drink and wine recommendations. I felt I had a story that needed airtime, that needed to be told. And so I went, really deeply into 
the wine world, the natural wine world, I started visiting vineyards by crazy and learning as much as I could. Right. That's what happened. Um, I think a good segue, because you opened the door, you know, at that time, writing and talking about natural wine, where it's evolved to, is, you know, 10 shows we could do. But I mentioned this to you also off air. Um, coinciding with your journey, tell me about the modern or recent natural wine movement, which wasn't going on much before you were... I mean, natural wine's been made for a long time. There are a lot of producers that have been doing it. But there was a time and a, a few makers right. that really influenced other people and, and clarified what it is. Tell me when that was, you know, right. what happened and the effects it had, had well, on today. I'd like to remind everybody that it isn't that this natural wine thing is new. I mean, I just really call right. it a reclamation of the way wine used to be. And I'm looking forward to the day when we stop calling it natural and leave the people who are trying to fake natural use it. It's just wine, good wine, fine wine. So the this probably will be just as long as the story as my own background, but to give this little bit of background, mechanization started coming into the vineyard in the 20s. After World War II, we started seeing chemistry in the vineyards. By the time the 1970s came along, when all of those nitrogen-based products that were supposed to be for bombs were repurposed for the vineyard and fertilizer, we started seeing the death of life in the vineyard. And out of this birthed life. So what happened... The um, Why did everyone practice that? It was quick, it was easy... Well, it took about 20 years. The product started being peddled in the 50s, and it really took until the 70s. And then it was really, hey, you're working too hard. We can make this easy for you. Why did everybody start eating frozen fruit and food in the 50s easy. and the 60s? And it was, it was pushed as healthier than fresh. Like, how can you figure out that these things are healthier than fresh? Really? So it was the same thing that was done, and the same thing actually was later done with additives in the winery. But to keep it chronological, there was this man, Marcel Lapierre, in Morgon in the Beaujolais. And he started making wine the way he was taught to make wine in school, which is to uh, pick underripe because you were afraid of something called picure lactique, which was a bacterial and, and would have sent the wine to vinegar. So you pick when it is underripe, you chapitalize it with sugar, and you explain what chapitalization adding is. sugar to prolong fermentation and also to boost the alcohol content. So because if you're going to be picking underripe, you're not going to get a 12 percent alcohol content. Use a hell of a lot of sulfur, and um, you know, and of course yeast because if you're using that much sulfur, so we had crappy viticulture, a lot of sulfur, a lot of sugar, yeasted um, wine, and he really thought, this is not my grandfather's wine. I don't like what I'm making. What the hell happened here? He had a neighbor, Jules Chauvet. Jules Chauvet was an elderly gentleman at the time. He was a scientist and a negociant and made wine. 
and he was studying how to make wine. He didn't call it naturally, but he was trying to figure out the traditional method of the region, which is carbonic maceration, and how to make a wine safely without any of these additives. So he did a lot of projects without adding any sulfur, any yeast, blah, blah, blah. And he was farming organically. He never went over to the dark side of science. <laughs> so Marcel became Jules's protege, and they started making wine together. He liked it. Not only did he like it, his buddies liked it. And the next buddy, until there were a little group of five buddies, like Jean Foyard and um, Guy Breton, uh, and they all, they became the, like the band, the band de cinq of Bourgon, and they started not really proselytizing at all. But here's where the love connection comes in, and I love this story because it is very much like telephone. Social media did not exist. Right. There was somebody who lived in the Loire, had a boyfriend who had a wine bar in France. And she said, hey, you better come down here and find out what these guys are doing. Something really cool is happening. So he came down, and this guy was Francois Morel, the original starter of the uh, journal, the Rouge Blanc. And he loved the wines, and he brought them to Paris. This was 1981 that these wines were coming to Paris. I think the first natural wine salon happened in Paris in 1981. So with the proximity of Paris to the Loire, and you have farmers coming in, and so you have this connection and convergence, and that is what happened. And slowly, 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 until so you figure by the end of the 90s, something started happening. So this Morgon Mafia. Yeah. They made wines that caught attention of the farmers in the Loire mm-hmm. and influenced, because Loire is a big natural wine. Right. But that's how it right. progressed. Right. And so um, I'm actually doing the natural wine story in the Loire for um, the French wine. I can't remember what it's called. <laughs> well, French I'll, wine, whatever. I cannot I'll, remember. Uh, I'll put it in our um, social media. Don't worry about it. Okay. Pascaline is putting all this together. Okay. And I'm one of... Uh, I'll follow the, up with you and we'll... Uh, and I'm writing about this this piece of history, which is really interesting because I'm doing a lot of research. So you have Pierre Breton and his entry into natural wine. He's one of the first guys in the end of the late 80s was by meeting Marcel Lapierre. Marcel was a very charismatic man. He was a larger-than-life character and he loved to party and people would come down so and many people cite him exactly. as a friend and an influence, mm-hmm. um, worked with him, did harvest. I mean, his tentacles went... Were everywhere. Know. And then that is one way that uh, Ber- I mean, the Beaujolais became a real hotspot for natural wine. And then from there, it started branching out. So that, that's, that's the modern... That's the modern... <laughs> the, the current... That's the the origin story, and we'll we'll talk about you know more more modern times. But since then, um, what I can't get my um, what I can't wrap around is why the movement today is so divisive and contentious. I may be jumping a lot of steps, but I think you know you're in the middle of that. Um, it's whenever you talk about it, you have lovers. Mm-hmm. And there's and, always and the haters have, jump into the Yeah, and that's almost true with everything. But I think with like natural wine and Trump, it's like so defined. It's so defined. And you think, actually, how can you, like, 
I, I got into trouble by saying natural wine has the higher moral ground. And people jumped all over that. I will say it over and over. Higher moral ground, organic viticulture, and you're only making wine from grape. Like, tell me that that's not more virtuous than using at least 12 different additives that are untested, have all sorts of allergens. Uh, and people are continually telling me that they don't have the bad reactions to natural wine that they do to other wine, and they're discovering they can drink wine again. Now, I'm not advocating natural wine as a health drink, by right. all means. It, it, it has been discussed that it way. Has there been, have been I, articles. And I cringe because yeah, it's I mean, still, you know, it's not. Right. It's an alcoholic but beverage. It is an alcoholic beverage, but so, but it is divisive. I think it's getting less divisive because... Awareness, awareness, and the the other side who has been trying to disparage natural wine are also reasoning, realizing this is the next wave, and they better, you know, they can't beat them, so they're going to have to join them, and that's going to be another problematic situation. The first thing you said to me is obviously the right thing. I mean, what are you knocking? You're knocking, you know, no intervention in the uh, fields. Minimal intervention in the cellar. The ingredient is the grape. Um, you talked earlier, you know, that wines of today add additives and all kinds of other things. I mean, wh- why, why are people in such defense of that? It's just the old guard? Well, part of it is the old guard, and a lot of these people are making their money on the old guard still. So old education modes, people advising countries on how to make wine. And some of the loudest uh, detractors of natural wine on Twitter are such consultants. And they're not going to be advocating that people make natural wine. It's almost like lobbyists in Washington pushing, you know, a point that isn't necessarily um, the right one. You know, I might, you might say, well, what about all those people who have all those hundred point wines in their cellar? And you know what? A lot of those people have sold off their collection. And a lot of those people are really enjoying natural wine. So I think it is, it is about old guard education. Think about it. If you embrace natural wine, you have to rethink your entire way of teaching wine. Right. Which has really been Nobody. built up in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, right. especially the 80s. Right. It's funny because when I got into wine in the 80s and 90s, I was into the whole parkerization thing. Hmm. You know, I cut my teeth with California cabs and then moved to Bordeaux. And they just got bigger and bigger. And I got more tired. And I still have a lot in my collection. And price, too. Mm -hmm. I mean, name me any great California maker, Harlan, Abreu. You can get... 20 bottles of Foyard Cotopui for one bottle of, you know, whatever. And the experience is, you know, so much better. So right. there were a lot of people like me that started and kind of realized, you know, I hope more people are like that. Um, why, why is there still so much confusion with natural wine? I think you and I identified that just the term or moniker natural is what we have, but not necessarily the best. It's the only people are... It's what we have, and it's not necessarily good enough. And the problems that we're having with the word natural is exactly the same problem when natural foods came and started. You started seeing them in the late 70s and the 80s. 
And it means nothing, right? Right. But with food, it can. I think actually it means more with wine, right? Than it does with food. But with food, it was greatly abused and also greatly mocked. And then all of a sudden, we have industrial organ- organics, and so natural wine is going to go that same road. And explain what industrial organics are. Like uh, huge farms. Uh, Basically, organic ingredients, but still ingredients and highly processed. And maybe, you know, the coloring comes from something of a natural source, but it's still synthetic, and that's natural. I'm sorry, it's, it's intervened natural. with in some yes. way. Yeah. So yes. it is organic to some sense, to some but sense. it's 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 better. You yeah. Know? But it's like I do but, like getting my milk from a farmer if I can do it as opposed to a very huge co-op where I really don't know how those cows are being treated. But answer this for me. I think food more than wine because the demand is there for both, but obviously it's bigger for food. Um, isn't that the, the direction it's going to have to go? Because yes. I think the awareness of natural, not natural, organic foods mm-hmm. and uh, people are willing to do that. The demand is going to be the only way to turn that out is going to be, you know, factor whatever you call right. it, factory organics or corporate organics or whatever. Right. It's but not going to happen with wine as quickly, right? About about co-opting the word natural and it's happening. It's is happening it? as we speak. Uh, there's a. Well, mostly in Europe. It hasn't quite happened here, but it is happening. So, for example, Aldi's supermarket in the UK came out with an €8 orange natural wine. And they were very kind, and they sent me two bottles unbidden. And I tasted it. It's supposedly organic viticulture. Nothing added, nothing taken away. No sulfites added. I'm looking at it. It's completely crystal clear like what the hell's going on not saying that a natural wine has to be cloudy but it is crystalline like so somebody was, was polishing it like crazy and so it i was tasted fined, it you think well or? it was so i tasted it it was not as bad as, as a supermarket it would be because been. it wasn't used to it and it's like a you know and it didn't have an artificial flavor and it didn't have artificial nose on it but it was dead. It was inert, totally inert for a wine that had no sulfur. So I was really stumped because I knew they were being honest with me. So then I asked them very point blank, how, does, how is it so crystalline? And they put it through a centrifuge, which is also a way that you can de-alcoholize a wine. And it also probably is, you know, probably the crop was very big for it. So I said, aha, well, centrifuging is absolutely not natural. Right. It's more it's manipulation. A, it's a heavy processing. And, and so there's nothing... To stop these people from putting natural, I think that's a perfect example. Yeah, I think that you have to say they organic did take and some steps free. to make it natural, but then they centrifuge it because yeah. they knew if it wasn't clear, right. it wouldn't sell in a supermarket. But this is the problem: we need to have a natural wine for eight euros or eight dollars, and it's impossible to have a really authentic one at that price now. Why? Just because of the farming and the process and the importing? I mean, it's just at that scale, it can't be done? Well, it can't be done in the United States because grapes are too expensive. We can still find it if we're drinking in Europe. Okay. But, but once not, we export it, it's not possible. Right, right. Um, 
That's a little sad. That is so sad. I drink so you know? well and cheaply when I'm in France and Italy. I was just going to say, so it's sort of a motivation and an encouragement exactly. to travel uh, three, four times a year. Um, you know, you talked about food and all this huge, you know, organic um, plays. Does the natural wine movement um, challenge the current wine establishment? Is that is that gonna like are the constellations gonna buy brands and expand them? I mean, doesn't that seem like that seems like the next step to me? That will happen. I I don't. I thought it would have happened by now. Um, I would bet money that Trader Joe's. Kendall Jackson, Gallo, all have something in R&D. Because they are going to lose market share. They don't like to do that. So there will be a little, all these people will have something. Now, um, It's like when Coke and Pepsi, if there's a brand that's hot, right. they just acquire it. But it's also having such a positive effect on the world. I mean, I don't know how that, but as but far as... But that's what I'm wrestling with, totally. because if that happens... The positive effect is there's a recognition of what wine should and could be, but mm-hmm. are they going to actually... Like the, the supermarket wine that you had, the orange wine, good intention, not right. the right execution? Or right. I mean, that's where there needs to be some legislation where they have a label that says additive-free. That would be much more honest than saying natural. So if you're Kendall Jackson or Constellation, there's no way you can make it well, I don't know additive-free, and they're going to fight against that. True? Well, I think that they're just going to have their little natural line, and they may do it well. I'm looking forward to seeing what they do. I think Kendall Jackson is a pretty honest company. Right. Um, and I think they would not do something like that. Would they... Would they be able to convert existing crops, or would they have to go out and acquire or plant new? Because even in the past, guys turned crops that were heavily used with pesticide into organic, some biodynamic. Well, all all of those big boys, maybe not Bronco, but all those others have some organic properties. They do. They do, and actually inching more and more to so to get it to market under their label is important right and then they'll see how it goes and they can and as i said the people the people who are getting their wine in the supermarket and i hope that that's where they focus it need to have a wine that's not you know just full of crap right um i'm curious if the if and I, I even feel uncomfortable just every time calling it natural wine, but that's what we're talking about. I'm curious the effects that social media have had on natural wines and if it's helped it, hurt it. And when you talk about social media, the people that have their hands on it literally and mm-hmm. their heads down are millennials. Um, what effects... Do Both. social media and millennials, you know, have on it? Is it positive? Well, I don't As Social media is a great unifier, so I, I see... I don't necessarily see it only as the domain of the millennial. And... But it is used in a great deal. So I think it's both positive and negative. Positive, but it certainly gets the word out. Um, 
and information is more, all the all the general stuff, all you know the stuff that we know. Um, wines are easily shared, and information is easily shared. But there are so many people trying to make money off of natural wine now that it's turned into a marketplace, and I kind of get grossed out by that. And it proliferates more because mm-hmm. of social media, right? And so. Absolutely. So, so that's the, the negative part. Yeah, you have all these importers that are saying, hey, I got this stuff, and so checking about, and they're really good about how great it is. And I see all these actually pretty bad wines showing up by really? people who they believed, uh, an Instagram feed. And on, I think it works for not just natural wine, but all wine. So I think we now have the, not, the Instagram sommelier that really gets all their information from Instagram and I, hype. I think that's been going on for a little while. Yeah. I think there's a lot of discovery. There's definitely influence. But in the context of natural wine, you know, that's a whole uh, different thing. As far as consumption, you know, people that are buying wines that are natural and ordering them off a list that service them, you know, whether it's Contra, Wild Air, French mm-hmm. Ed, or, you know, other great wine bars, is there a demographic or is it everybody it's everybody is it it's not just younger that's because millennials want a story and there's a good story behind natural wine they want healthy right i think that what you're going to find with the new people coming in let's call them the millennials is that they're more likely to fall into the trap of um asking for a style of wine i would like a cloudy wine as if that means it's a natural wine uh, and as if there's no other sparkling wine other than Pet Nat. Right. So it's, it's a little bit weird. Right. I think that other people who have more wine knowledge know exactly. Right. No more. Um, you brought in a Pet Nat I did. to taste, and we're going to... Are we going to open it? We're going to open it now and drink it so we can get a little buzz for the remainder of the show, but we're going to break it down and evaluate it at the end of the show. Wow, that was great. That was. Um, it got shook up on the subway. I guess. But it, it, we gave it a, it's a good thing we gave it a little time to settle. Um, you, you almost, you, you were approaching answering my, my next question, but, you know, what do you think the most misunderstood aspect of natural wine is? What's the thing that just drives you crazy? Let me get back here. I was just Don't pouring worry. a little wine for you. The Ooh, this thing nice. about natural wine that drives me nuts. Or wh- how it's misunderstood. or Well, it drives me nuts that there are so many haters out there. Um, and it drives me nuts that people say, well, I don't like natural wine, but I like it when it's good. Well, you could say that about everyone. Everything. That's the funny part. That's so, the thing. That's so one of the misunderstandings, it, it gets picked apart more than other things. Like, listen, you can go to, if you eat meat, you can go to a great steakhouse or a crappy steakhouse. Right. You order a bottle of wine, you can get a great bottle, you get a crappy, and, and not necessarily for less money. Right. You know, there's crappy wine for $80. Right, absolutely. Um, so that's one of the things. What else do you think? Well, I think people hate to hate. <laughs> They're looking for something. Or but they love to hate. <laughs> yeah. People love to hate. They love to hate. Uh, it's a clickbait hate. It's awful, but it is. I. One of my frustrations is that carbonic maceration, which is the kind of fermentation that happens within the berry. Tell, just walk people through that. 
Okay. That, so, that's part of it, but put it all together. So, because we mentioned it a couple times, and tra- in Beaujolais, a traditional fermentation means you stomp it or you somehow crush it, uh, and let's say you're making a a red wine. So you stomp it, you crush it, you let it ferment on the skins, and then you press it off. The way you have a carbonic macerated wine, and there are a million different ways of doing this, but I'll give you one, is that you take whole bunches of grapes that are perfect and beautiful, and you put them in a closed container. And the most natural way that you can do it is that you wait for it to start fermenting on the inside of the grape. Some people... It's still in the cluster. It's in the cluster. Connected to the stem and the other grapes. There's a little bit of So the skins, they try not to break skins in all of that. Right. So it goes in, no skins are broken, because if you do that, it could be some bacterial stuff going on. And so it is an intracellular fermentation, and it happens within... We've all had fruit that has begun to ferment, and you go, wow, that's pretty wild, and this is exactly what happens. So then... When in a closed container, the berries burst and the juice comes out and then the juice is removed and it continues fermenting in a different container. So that's one why. And I have a, one of my favorite illustrations in the book is carbonic maceration, which is like a bunch of constipated grapes. It's just so funny. I, I amused a five-year-old with it. I think I'm turning the kid onto wine through it. My bad. Why did we bring up carbonic? Okay. You, were, you okay, brought it up. Okay, because something that I, I hate that it's become, it's considered a positive. Oh, this is a natural wine. It's carbonic. I'm like, no, it's not necessarily natural because it's carbonic. And since when is carbonic more virtuous than natural fermentation? It's funny. I always thought that. But you see as much carbonic maceration, you know, in natural wine makers and circles and all of that. Um, now, Correct me if I'm wrong. A lot of people do whole cluster winemaking yes. without, you know, yes. c- closing the right. the lid and putting CO2 in and, you know, right. letting everything. Um, are there any carbonic macerated wi- wines that you like? Of course. Okay. Of course there are. But going back to the great-grandfather of natural wine, Jules Chauvet, he's the one who said that Carbonic maceration is not necessarily a technique that works on in other places. And it's particularly good on granitic soils with Gamay, maybe Syrah, maybe Grenache. So it's specific in where it works best. Yeah. And you do see it a lot in Gamay. We'll get off the subject in a second. But why do winemakers love carbonic maceration? What, what effect does it have on the taste of the wine? It Usually, and I've had instances where it isn't like this, but it usually makes an easy drinking, okay, low tannin, fruity wine. Like a, it, did you say low alcohol too, or not necessarily? Not necessarily. Just very drinkable. Yeah, it depends on the vintage. Yeah, right. But very drinkable. Right. But, and I think that's a direction wine is going. You know, glau glau, drinkable, lower alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I guess that's yeah. Why that's it's... the other be- pet peeve. Which is what? Help me. Which with that. Which is that? Not all. You know, there are serious natural wines that are not glue glue. That they're that they're just not van soif. They're that is a certain kind of wine made mm-hmm. for drink at three o'clock in the morning. But Some I've people seen, think all of it is. But I've seen people 
see or taste beautifully structured and big wines because it's from the southwest of France or right. a really hot region. And they just said, no, not interested. I'm like, why? Doesn't make sense. Um, Alice, we're going to take a quick break because we have to. And we could do five shows on just natural wine, but I really did bring you here to talk about your, to talk about your book. So when we come back, um, I want to talk to Alice about her new book, Natural Wine for the People. You're listening to The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Foster Sundry, a specialty grocery located in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Since opening in August 2015, Foster Sundry has evolved into a neighborhood hub for weekend brunch, weeknight groceries, coffee on your morning commute, a draft beer after work, and so much more. Their cheese counter, whole animal butcher, and produce section make grocery shopping a pleasure. Foster Sundry also offers catering and wholesale. Learn more at fostersundry.com. That's F-O-S-T-E-R-S-U-N-D-R-Y dot com. Are you enjoying our podcast? Heritage Radio Network has lots more. I'm Ethan Frisch. And I'm Jenny Dorsey. And together we host Why Food, a podcast about innovators, career changers, and entrepreneurs who are changing the face of food. How did these folks decide to hit the brakes, start over, and become inspiring chefs, entrepreneurs, farmers, and activists they are today? Browse episodes of Why Food wherever you listen to podcasts and on Heritage Radio Network. All right, we're back. We're back with my guest, Alice Firing. Alice is the author of her new book, Natural Wine for the People. Um, I want to get into that with you, Alice. The obvious first couple of questions are, why did you write this book and why now? I mean, this stuff's been bubbling in your head for a while. Well, yeah, these are... Typical journalistic questions: Why this story, and why now, and why me? Well, I, I, to right. get to the next, I think people right. want to know. Okay, because it uh, actually it. I was having drinks with Talia Bioki from Punch Drink, and she told me I had to write this book. <laughs> That's why I wrote the book. And Why did she think you had to write the book? Because I told her I didn't want Which to write about wine anymore. But she's answering the question I'm asking you, because now is the time right. where the right voice needs to and, guide and us through that's this. That's exa- exactly it. It's just that nobody else can do it but you, so please do it, because when was just that? do it. And that was about two years ago. And I didn't want to write another book about wine. I was really kind of burnt out. And I thought, you know what? She's absolutely right. And I thought Naked Wine was this book, but it was a narrative. And I wanted to write a fun book. I wanted to write a fun book about natural wine. And I find all these people were like, where do I go to learn about natural wine? What, what is it? And I thought, you know. Where did they go before this book? Well, they went to my books. Uh, right. Not enough of them, but they should have gone to my newsletter. Um, <laughs> right. we'll, we'll talk, we'll talk about, about that. that. Um, they went to <coughs> Isabella Jerome's book, but right. that, that was the it. Raw wine, right. And a lot of misinformation. Right. But there was no one, nobody had done a little concise guidebook that really covered the issues and made you, prepared you to go out into the world and start learning about natural wine. It's funny you said guidebook, because I read a cover to cover, and... 
I told you this before the show. I thought it was a terrific book. I'm not saying that because you're my guest and it sounds right. I enjoyed it, and to me it's now a reference. And you said the word guide, and in my notes I said this book is as much a guide as it is a book Hmm. because there are stories and depth, um, but there's a lot of information in everything. So break down the book for me. It's you could pick the book up at any time. Right. No, it's <laughs> if not you need to know about producers, it's okay if you didn't read the beginning. If you read the beginning mm-hmm. and you didn't get to the producers eventually, but not by chapter, but the the main elements of the book. Well, it's, tell it's, people what they're going to get. And the subtitle tells it all, which is you know what it is, how to drink it, where to find it, and I this as my opportunity to sit somebody down and say, let me tell you about natural wine. You know, first, let's start with farming. Let me tell you about the farming. But, and then it, that was actually, so that's the little technical chapter, and it was, but it was kind of it's fun. It's not that to technical. No, I, I, well, I mean, it, to, it, it makes you understand, okay. you know, what, what natural wine is. I mean, it starts with farming. Right. And all the guys we've talked about are really farmers. Um, and I you know, try, because I'm a narrative writer, try to make it as narrative and as relatable as possible. Then the second one was a little bit more fun. How to drink it. Right. You, so you start thinking, I did want, this may be my only guidebook, so you know, what do you put in? Like, how does a natural wine person approach a glass? How does a natural wine person um, So talk about that for a second. A Is it so much different than drinking other wine? No, it's not. That's the reality of everything. Wine That's is right. wine. Natural wine is wine. Yes, the thing is, is and I, I did take on the drinking out of the bottle thing, which has become an Instagram meme, which I, I have been known to drink out of a bottle if I in the middle of the woods at like two o'clock in the morning and there happens to be a bottle and there's no glass around. But it really isn't the most enjoyable thing. Because but there's I do a like why not wine. to it. What's the why not? Uh, the, the why not is because it's not the most enjoyable. I mean, we're drinking this wine because not just to get a buzz on, but because of you're missing more than half of the sensual experience, which it is smelling it. It evolves outside of the glass. Yes, right. and smelling. You right. don't smell it. So... That just uh, just on taste alone, no, I like to smell my wine. I think it's kind of important. It right. tells you a lot of things whether you want to drink it or not. Right. So that so was how kind to of taste. Chicken. How to taste a what little, a flaw You did is. a little history, which I made you talk about. Yes. Um, what, you know, I've asked a lot of guests. I didn't ask you, how do you define natural wine? I mean, the book yeah, does, and does. we talked about it. Yeah. By talking about it, it comes out. You yeah, know, and the, I don't understand why there's such a controversy about well what it what is it we all know what it is it's it's wine from organic viticulture and there's nothing added nothing to take away and not processed right with and you mentioned if other companies get into it they should have an additive list and that's not natural and that's what we're experiencing when you talked about producers and you talked literally about wine shops was it hard to did you narrow it down or did you feel like you left people out I or? did leave people out in fact when it's I looked at the book I'm like didn't I put more people on um, and I have to go back to find out whether it was a, you didn't get any calls 
Hey, Alice, what's up? No, because it wasn't meant to be exhaustive. Yeah. And right. I, I, and they're popping up every day. You know, like, for ex- I got a call from Dandelion, which is a fabulous little shop in Greenpoint. And she said, would you come here and do your signing? And I said, oh, Lily, I didn't put you in the book. Can you forgive me? She said, ah, we're tiny. So... You had to do That's the signing. Na- it's a neighborhood. Yeah. It's a neighborhood spot. Yeah. So, uh, I was trying to pick places that had some accessibility or right. really such a specialty. It was you were going out there for it. One of the things you talk about in the book is that wine, natural wine, is sometimes flawed or inconsistent, mm-hmm. and you differentiate between flaws and, and faults. And I think flaws and faults floats around in people's heads when they think natural wines. Just break that down for me. I mean, give me an example of a flaw and a fault as it pertains to, you know, drinking a natural wine. Well, I think it's fun to juxtapose it to um, conventional wines and the way people might be judging conventional wines where clarity is praised. And in natural wine, I know if you're coming from a a conservative point of view, you may think, oh, the cloudy wine is uh, a flaw. But it's not a flaw. It's not a fault. It's perfectly acceptable in natural wine. Volatility, the little bit of nail polish remover on the nose, in a conventional wine world that is evaluating a wine would uh, penalize a wine that had that little nail polish remover smell. In natural wine, It's not a fault. It's not a flaw. It's perfectly accepted. And I don't think anybody has actually put this down in print before. And when we go, when natural wine becomes the way wine, all wine is evaluated, this will be part of the education. But it's funny when you apply it to something else. When you go to the supermarket and eat a choice steak, Mm -hmm. maybe it's okay. Then you go to a steakhouse and you eat a 39-day dry age it's just a more intense taste you know it's it's not a flaw or a fault it's just the process of you know how you do that people just i guess they get confused and with natural wine they just pick harder at it well when wine chemistry and your wine when wine schools started like coming up in the age of additives they could fix that nail polish remover. They right. could fix a little bit of Brett. So it became a flaw. Which a lot of wines, like you mentioned Kendall Jackson, a lot of their wines, they taste the same every year. It mm-hmm. has nothing to do with the vintage or the climate right. or whatever because that's what and people all those want. Big that's companies. The, uh, yeah, all that's the, the opposite of natural wine. You also talk in the book, you have a pretty long list of natural wine myths. Yes. Um, Don't ask me to remember them, but I'll try to think well, of if you need. <laughs> you you got to know your top three or, you know, I mean, they're so ingrained. Yeah, in, like all uh, natural wine is cloudy. And I'm like, no. You know, if you bottle from the top of the of the quivery, which is the Georgian right. you know, buried clay vessel, it's going to be clear. If you bottle from the bottom... It's cloudy. It's not less of a natural wine because you took the top. Or So, so that's clear that up for me. If a guy's making wine in an amphora, which mm-hmm. is a quiver, whatever. Yeah, that's, amphora. Um, 
and he's bottling it, mm-hmm. there'll be bottles that are clearer than others? Yeah. If they, just as he pulls the juice out? If they don't rack before about bottling, right. which when you're dealing with a quivery is a major pain in the ass. So yeah, I don't really awkward. know anybody who does it. And a lot of people do not um, do not rack before bottling. They bottle directly from the cask. And uh, so the first bottles are going to be clearer than the last. And some people will go right down to the end, but usually that gets... All right, I have a list of things which I think fall under myths and even bigger, and I want, I want you to give me quick reactions or info. I think one of the knocks you get on natural wine is ageability. Right. Other stuff can't That's age. Or stability, consistency. Right. Okay. Not true, right? Not true, and I give a lot of examples of how to build a natural wine list and, and which wines to stock. So if a wine is built to age, it ages. There are a lot of great examples. Emidio Pepe is probably a great right, example of it. Italy. Early uh, Chateau Moussard for the 60s and 70s, another from great Lebanon. example. There are plenty. Right. So you could be steered towards natural wines that have great ageability, and yes. there are wines that you drink now or yeah. in the next few years. Exactly. And that's true with a lot of other and wines. That's true of all wine. I couldn't get to the bottom of this. And I think it was in the book, and I saw it in other places. You have issues with natural cork, right? I, I didn't put that in the book, did I? No, you I don't. You may not have, but it kind of caught my attention. Like, what's going on with... I need Alice to tell me what the issue with natural... Well, the cork. issue with natural cork is some people are upset about the depleting of the resources. But uh, Is that the main... Th- not what it does to the wine? Well, that's one of them. Okay. And the other one is that we get corked from... We get corked wines from natural cork. Right. Which sucks. Right. You know, it's like we all have been there like, man, it's corked. Uh, and, but... Is there a movement I'm, away from that or it's not... Screw cap is... And and I brought a crown ca, crown cap wine. Pet nets have a... Mostly. There are sort some... Sort of pop cap type. Some of. don't. Yeah. Some some have a cork. But I, I still... I'm old fashioned. I like my cork. Right. I do too. But... Not the end of the world. It's not the end of the world. I'm very happy with the screw cap. You talked about Parker earlier, and he was the king of rating wines. You are against numerical ratings. I am very much. So why and how could somebody understand how you articulate without numerical ratings? Which is not hard. I just want you to answer. You you know, that a wine is up there in your mind. Well... As a, as a writer, I really like people to read my words. <laughs> and so without... So you think a number is like, all right, this is under 90 done. No, this people, is above 95. Exactly. They don't get into why. Yeah. Or they go for it and then maybe they'll read it, but they're going after those. And really, I, those descriptions are, are, are useless. In my newsletter, I have little icons that I use. And... If I've used both the the classic, the hardcore, the love, the lay it down, all in, and cool stuff, all in one wine, you probably know that I find it completely and utterly fascinating. Right. It has all the elements. Yeah. Right. It's, if I have, but when I just have a thumbs up and cool stuff, 
you know. Good drinking. It's good drinking. I'm usually not going to have a $60 bottle of wine with just a thumbs up. Right. Um, I guess if you subscribe to the firing line, you would have a sense of, you know, how you approach this and right. what excites you. Um, if people want to know more about the firing line, and we'll talk about it, we'll plug it later, where do they go? They go to thefiringline.com. F-E-I-R-I-N-G line.com. Um, one more thing, and I forgot to tell you, I have to subject you to our wine list. I ask all our guests five questions about their wine preferences, and okay. we're going to do the special. You forgot to tell me. We're going to, well, it's good because I want you to be spontaneous. We're going to do the special Alice natural wine version. Um, you talk in the book about eight tenants of great wine. Mm-hmm. I don't think I want you to sit here and um, roll them all off. But two things, why did you need to put a list of, you know, the great tenants of wine and at least what's the important ones or the takeaway overall? I was asked to judge a natural, well, actually to judge a natural wine division of a tasting at Vinitaly. And I said, okay, but I'm, we're not going to give numbers. We're not going to give scores. Uh, I'll figure out something else. So I figured out what is important to me when I drink a wine to be able to evaluate it. And I thought, if I have six out of these eight, I have a superior wine. As it turns out, you can assign wine a value on that. You can give it a number, but I just wish people wouldn't go there. But to me, the most important thing about a wine is whether you respond to it emotionally. And basically, whether you like it or not. So, but do you have an emotional reaction? Does it make you recoil, smile, laugh? Like, whoa, You'll what is it? You'll know when it happens, You know when right? it happens, like yeah. love. You know when it happens, right? Yeah. Does it have a sense of place? Does it evolve in the glass? Does it feel good in your body? And this is something that people who drink conventional wine never think. And if you drink natural wine, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Right. It's digestible. It feels good. And... Uh, this sense of place is really important, but it's not necessarily essential for a wine that you're going to be drinking at 3 o'clock in the morning and you know, the night right. is young. So there are, I think it's a very different way to evaluate wine. Well, that sort of answers why you don't use a numerical system right. because it's more involved and those mm-hmm. are the things you know, that are important which I think is another encouragement to get the book to understand those tenants. Because once you realize that, you'll realize, you know, what you're enjoying. Um, Before we jump to the wine list, you said sexism manifests itself in wine and in other industries. And certainly in wine, you've stated that men, because they're men, are taken more seriously. and I agree with you on all of that. Today, today, what is the difference between being a man in the wine business versus a woman? I mean, have things changed? You still subjected with issues and frustration? Uh, yes. <laughs> I, you're, being having been targeted, uh, as we talked a little bit earlier. Yeah. About, um, Go ahead, name names, right? So there's this guy, Ron Washam, that I've been in his... He's 
calls himself the host master of wine. And I didn't talk about this for He's sort years. of an inside wine baseball yeah, columnist. A, it's a bro He thing. was a psalm, right? Yeah, he was a psalm, and now I think he's working in a tasting room in Santa Rosa. And he, I've been in his crosshairs since 2010, and, and it really got extremely ugly this year. Uh, so... Where I'm not the only woman getting attacked there, but all the women get sexualized, and all the men, when they're parodied, and I put that in quotes, like are situated in nursing homes and and (laughs) continent or something, but they're not exactly doing, like the equivalent, if he gave the guys the same treatment, they'd be like doing some sort of circle jerk. I mean, he got that (laughs) ugly with the women. So that's one thing, and that is its own thing and it might be just a once off except a very respected master of wine had the temerity to pay Ron for this piece to put on his own website. Why? I have no idea. Well, he could pay him. He, he published it on he the site. He published it. Yeah, but he, you know, Tim pays for buying right. pieces. The worst of that is that people thought that I wrote the piece because it was called Alice Firing's um, tribute to Robert Parker. It was so crazy. It was almost as if you wrote a, a satirical parody, right? Right. I know. It's like it was. <clears throat> People could misunderstand, like, "Oh, Alice is being silly here." I know, but guess what? Not everybody knows. He may. No, no, He no, may no. wake I up agree. in the morning obsessed with me, but most people aren't. Right. <laughs> so that's that's one thing. Would a man get that kind of treatment? No. Do women have to be better than everybody than their male counterparts? I think so. Still. And I, uh, still. And I... Still. And... At what levels? A sommelier at a restaurant? Well, a writer? For example... Winemaker? I, I, mean, I don't uh, think Koskinen <clears throat> would be out there getting every accolade in the book and competing so much. If she were a man, she wouldn't have to. It's a fulfillment, she feels... You know, it's like then. You See, know, I don't. I think of her as you know, brilliant and so talented and easy to do that. But and, I and guess, she is, and she yeah. Is, no, we're not taking is, that away from her. Is, but you just explain recognized. But but and, and I'm bringing something up, not in the negative because I love this guy. I think a guy like Raj Parr has no certifications. Absolutely. And he's a, he's got one of the best palates. He's a great winemaker, and he's a great guy. So maybe a woman in his position wouldn't get potentially the same. And also extremely, extremely talented taster. Um, yeah. And he also was in charge of a lot of money when he was at Michael Myers yeah. Group. Which, if you are a woman and wielding a lot of dough, you will be getting respect, at least to your face. Right. Are but, things changing or tempering a little, or we're still well, there are a lot of women. sitting in a shit pond here? <laughs> we there are a lot of women in the in the industry, but there really aren't that many women in power. Right, that's that's the business world, unfortunately, too. Right, if you yeah. analyze any industry, finance, right. automotive. Yeah, no, it's great that Esther Mobley is at the San Francisco Chronicle. Esther was on the show. She's terrific. She is terrific, and it is great that she has a, a vehicle like that. And sensitive about important things going on yeah. around her, which, yeah. which I like. Um, but I there is a bro club. The bro club exists. Still exists. Um, again, another topic we could do a okay. whole show on, but we're going to segue into our wine list. 
Alice, you cannot escape from this. Every week we ask our guests the same five questions. Um, be spontaneous. Don't dwell on them. People are interested in what you're drinking, and that's what the questions are about. So the first question is, what are you drinking now? What I'm drinking now is the wine that I brought. Well, yes, and we're <laughs> going to talk about But like, what's but in your fridge? What, right. So you're drinking a Patnat, and we'll talk okay, about we'll it. Okay, we'll talk about it. Um, uh, this what else? Week, um, this week I drank a 2016 Dardenne Boca, the one that had the K label, and I haven't had it in a really long time. And I was waiting for the proper moment to crack it, and it really was absolutely delicious, and their wines, their white wines are totally overlooked. So that Northern Rhone, mm-hmm. white, mm-hmm. natural winemaker. Mm-hmm. Yep. The way Iconic. we discuss what natural is. Right. Yeah. From Chris um, That's a good one. Yeah. Anything else? Uh, last um, night, I had a really shitty day, and I could not <laughs> wait to get home and pop open something. And so I went to my go-to uh, cheap wine. This uh, is, I relish this answer. What is it? And it's, I'm never disappointed with Domaine Guion, G-U-I-O-N, and Cuvée Prestige, the 2016 is what I've got now, and it's Earthy Borgoy, and it's delicious. That's how you answer that question. All right, here's the goofiest question of the lot. Do you have a favorite wine and food pairing? Not that you eat every week, every month, but does something just make sense to you or when it happens over and over? It's like, wow. Absolutely not. No. No, really? but it's always the new one of the moment. And I'll tell you what the new one of the moment is. I'm okay with that. Cinco Campe Lambrusco with really hot Indian food. Okay, so I love Lambrusco. I'm glad you didn't say pizza. So spell out the Lambrusco for me, because we post all your Cinque answers. Cinco is in five. C-I-N-C-O-Q-U-E. Campe. C-A-M-P-I. And um, with in spicy Indian food, yeah, it's really good. Now, it is it a dry, it's dry Lambrusco? Dry, fizzy, no sulfur, Great. perfectly old fashioned, beautiful Lambrusco. Great, um, I like that answer. Um, favorite wine restaurant and/or bar? People that get it are doing it well. Have the selection, can talk about it. I worry with this question sometimes that you know you leave things out or you forget, right. but. Who's doing it well? We talked in the book. You mentioned a million great producers. There's one or two. Right. Who's good in New York? And, and this oh, is going to go outside of New York. No, you can go anywhere. <laughs> you can go anywhere. This is under the context of, you know, natural wine for the people. Yeah. Um, I'm gonna, go anywhere. I'm going to go to Tbilisi and I'll say uh, Vino Underground. I love Vino Did you say Tbilisi? Yeah. Vino Underground. Yeah, I did. Oh, my God, your, your expression. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that's a first, and I like that. Um, so if you're in Tbilisi, that's in Georgia? <laughs> yes, in Tbilisi. Georgia. If you're in Vino Underground. Now, I'm going to come over there and twist your arm a little. What about something a little more accessible? Okay, okay, Paris, okay. New York? Um, just Paris is always... Always changing for me, which is uh, cool. Which which is cool. Which is always like fabulous trend. Um, and usually, natural uh, wine bar there is bar resto. R e s t o. More of a restaurant. Okay. Um, but I'll give you New York. Sure. Oh, actually, how about how about uh, uh, Santiago, Chile? 
No. Okay. Okay. I'll no, go no, to New York. No, that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> I'll go to New York. I still you love don't 10 have Bells. To. I still love 10 Bells okay. because they've got the deepest. 10 Bells one. is, Ten they've been doing a, it a while. So, I mean, they, they deserve. And it's affordable. They de- right. They, they and do. that's a big one for me. And also, I'll give a shout out to The Usual, which is in my neighborhood. And I go there all the time. With what, 10 Bells? The Usual. Oh, The Usual. Anthony. Anthony. Um, if love Anthony. If he'd get he back to me uh, on my email, I know. we'll, well, we'll okay. put a date together for him to come on the show. Um, it's funny. I had Sev Peru on many years ago, and then mm-hmm. she like disappeared She's to Australia, Australia you know, for like two years already. Um, do you have a favorite all-time wine or wines? It used to be in the context of what was the trophy wine or what. And now it's really experiential or, oh, wow, or something that was important at an is there a wine that's meaningful to you? Oh, there's so many. There Give me are just a top so many. Two. I meaningful. It's like meaningful at which moment. But you know, uh, my most sentimental wine is probably Clorache Blanche, and they don't exist anymore. Their right. last vintage was 2014. You've talked about that. Uh, you know, I would be. It's it's a cliche to say Auvergne, okay. but uh, hard to get to. But. Uh, Domaine de Miroir, who is a new... Spell? Domaine de D-S, M-I-R-O-I-R-S. And if also from the Girard, very emotional wines for me. And, you know, Those still, are good. I still love Barolo. You do? Still love Barolo. Northern Rhone's... I love San Joseph, love San Joseph. Those are my favorites, Cornas and San Joseph. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, I cut my teeth with Cali Cabs and Tuscany, and I'm right. so far away, you know, I'm yeah. all over Pilange and Barolo right. and Barbaresco. Um, good ones. Last question, and I think you could handle this. Hmm. Um, recommend two wines to me. Best wine around 15, 20 bucks. Give me a red, give me a white. I just did. Those? Well, no. I, well, Domaine de Guillaume. Okay, so will you... Well, will, that's going to be about 15, 16 bucks. Perfect. Um, perfect. And that would be a red wine. Right. And for a white, my default is Muscadet. Uh, as a category, that's fine. Do you have any makers that you... Yes, Alice, come on. Uh, well, I, I love I love Jolandron, and if I can get hold of the Melanix, which is the Sansouf, and that's always a, a big thrill. That's good, Jolandron. Um, all right, as I said, I will post those answers on our social okay. media, Facebook, Instagram. If I have any uh, questions on spelling or whatever, I'll reach out to you. All right, we always end the show with our weekly wine sip. We have about five minutes to... Oh, I've been guzzling mine. Well, no, you have to give me a refill. I do. And this week for our weekly wine sip, we're tasting a pet gnat that Alice brought in. It's made by Marie Rocher, which is a very interesting story. I think she was a journalist. Her dad was in the business. She, Alice brought in a 2018 Le Valzu. How do you pronounce that? Valzus, the Waltzers. Valzus, the Waltzers. Beautiful label. 
There's even a story on the label. Um, it's made from gamay. Mm-hmm. It's a sparkling pet nat. It's a salmon pinkish. Um, it's from the Cher Valley in the Loire. Alice, tell me a little more about this. Okay, Marie Rocher was my first, well, my publisher's mm. daughter in France, Jean-Paul Rocher. Who, I didn't realize that. Who published my first two books and was also the publisher for Jules Chauvet. Mm. So uh, he was a fabulous, fabulous, fabulous man. And Marie went from, she went from urban planner to bread baker. And on his, her father's deathbed, she decided she was going to go into the wine business to keep his vision alive. And so this is her First commercial vintage, and I feel like a proud aunt. And it's such a delicious wine, and she's had wonderful mentors. So Pascal Potter, who makes beautiful, beautiful pet knots as well, was her mentor for this. And Didier Barillet, who was with Claroche Blanche, he made wine with ah, Catherine, is her nice other mentor. For you. And for the time being, for the next vintage, she's going to be making... This wine was made in the cellar of Clairoche Blanche. Wow. So it is a wonderful, wonderful emotional wine for me. And it was um, one of the wines that I sent out to my wine club this week. So is this all she's making? She's making a Sauvignon Blanc. Okay. And a Gamay, but I haven't had the Gamay. She made it in 18 or it's coming in a later vintage? It is coming. The Sauvignon Blanc, which may have been one of the most enjoyable wines I had when I was recently in France, is going to probably land in October. Okay. Um, so that's... A newcomer and one to look out for. Marie Rocher, O-R-O-C-H-E-R. Right. And Les Values, L-E-S-V-A-L-S-E-U-S-E-S. Um, let's evaluate this. Let's do the normal check down. So color, is that like a salmon pink? What, what do you... It's a very delicate salmon pink. Yep. It's beautiful. Yeah. Um, Almost onion skin. The bubbles... Beautiful, fine bubbles, a nice rim of bubbles. Um, talk to me about the nose. What do you get on the nose? Very quiet. Not about the nose for me. Um, there's a little bit of sea breeze. Mm. A little tiny hint of... Is that salinity of, to you? Yeah. Yeah. Light. Mm-hmm. Hint of what? Just like a little, littlest hint of strawberry on the nose, like... Wait, yeah. is it gone? No, no, no. But yeah, it's just slightly, That's good the hint. slightly, but it is a very saline, salty air nose. Let's talk mouthfeel. The first time I drank it, it was very mouthfilling. I mean, mm-hmm. it really spread out, you know, quickly. How would you describe the mouthfeel on this? It's a bit vertical. And going back to my last book That's that you're going acid. to get. You know, that verticality with limestone soils? Explain, because it's in the book. A wine, when you taste it, that's vertical. What does that mean? And horizontal. Vertical, I know, is acid to you, right? But Mm. break that down for me quickly. Well, um, it's going to be a really hard thing to break down. But verticality is you basically feel the acid very... It's specific. It's direct. Right. Um, and, you know, the horizontal is more of a broad and richness. Does that almost mean 
like in your mouth. It's not everywhere. It kind of yeah, because the acidity really seems to right. You know, like shoot it up to the roof of your mouth. And horizontal is it's just the opposite. Okay. Um, you said the nose was quiet. Yes. Is the palate the same, or are there more things you could talk about? Oh, there's on? much more going on in, in in the palate, and that that hint of or the promise of the slight berry on the nose comes through on mm-hmm. the palate. But it's still this is not about a fruit bomb. It's something that's refreshing and a little like silvery, a little like I silver. You know, there is something metallic, but not in a negative way of metallic, but like a silver-ish is, has that vivacity. Right. Um, which so is it's, inter- more, it's nuance. It's interesting in that sense. A um, right. little bit of, I mean, more typically, a little bit of green pears and, and bruised apple and mm. stuff like that that you would kind of expect. And it is flavor without being completely flavorful, right. and it it does the job. It's just enjoyable. What would we pair this with? You could have it on its own. You can have it as a pair of teeth. You could have it at before the, and after a dinner. You could have it no, but, yeah, not I'm after. Sure. Of course, after dinner. But after you hesitated. Better before. I, I mean, I always before. like to pop a or champagne would, or a sparkle yeah, or a pet nap no, before. I people think come in the house, I'm popping this. And it usually pairs with the food. All its radishes, blah, yeah, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Uh, I could have it with a salad course that has good acidity, so yes. I could do that too. Good wine with a salad. Um, do we like this wine or do we love this wine? I love this wine. Okay, I do too. But, um, but you know, I'm not the... I'm no, no, you stated your... Uh, I'm biased. You stated your biases, but they're okay, all good but, ones. But it is you know, good. They're, they're legit. Um, is this somewhat readily available? It is readily available. I don't know who has it retail, but I'd just do Wine Searcher and try to find okay. it. And I'll post it, and I spelled it out for you before. Um, all right, Alice, we have to wrap up. Um, we just, like I said, we tasted the Marie, Marie Rocher 2018 Le Val Sous. I know, it's a hard one. I know. I try to get her I really, I suck Marie. at French, too. <laughs> you um, know, Marie, really like, maybe suck. make it a little bit easier for Americans. I was reading about it. I go, wow, Cher made this wine. <laughs> you know, <laughs> this must be cool. Um, all right, I'll post everything so everyone knows. I think this is a wine uh, worth trying, and we've been, we love champagne and sparkling wine on we the do. show and Even we've had the a, show. <laughs> we've had a lot of great champagne makers and pet net makers all right alice we have to wrap up um if you have a question suggestion wine happening or event hit me up at sam at the grape nation.com that's sam at the grape nation.com subscribe to the grape nation podcast wherever you get your pods but certainly on itunes stitcher spotify um follow us on facebook we're at the grape nation on Instagram, we are at my account at SBenRuby, and we hashtag the Grape Nation. Um, on Twitter, we're at BenRuby, not SBenRuby, and we hashtag the Grape Nation. As I mentioned, we will post Alice's wine list, and we will post her weekly wine sip answers. There were some very interesting, good stuff there. I will also uh, post any other wines that we talked about. Um, Alice... Where can we find you and your new book, Natural Wine for the People? Um, 
in stores and on social media? Well, let's start with the book. You can get book, it. You can get it. It's actually at a lot of places. So it's at walk-in bookstores. Is it's it on a, Amazon? It's on Amazon, but try to be conscientious about it and don't go to Amazon if you go can to your avoid local it. bookseller. Support your local indie bookseller or what wine would you shop? expect I'm from a, a natural wine <laughs> OG? I think they. I agree. I think Lily does have it at Dandelion, and I. Um, Chamber Street should have it. Uh, I'm trying to think about other shops that have it, but McNally Jackson has it. Right. It's, it's readily available. Okay. Barnes and Noble, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and the firing line is your what do you call it? Blog newsletter. It's a newsletter. I'm You've a, been doing it fifteen plus years. No, no, but I think it is. Uh, and it's it's about to start its seventh year. I thought you started in two thousand four. That was the blog. Oh, okay. That was so Alice in its Firing. incarnation. Okay. Yeah. If people want to view it and then hopefully ultimately subscribe, where do they go again? Thefiringline.com. All right. And if people want to see you prancing around on Instagram or they other go social, Alice.firing. All right. Twitter, that's... if anybody uses it anymore, is Alice Firing. <laughs> People pretty, use Twitter. I, yeah, I am. I'm easily found. All right. Um, all right. I want to thank our guest, Alice Firing. I want to thank her for helping us with the world of natural wine. Um, and we got a chance to talk about her book, Natural Wine for the People. We told you where it's available. If you have a deeper interest in this, this is the best uh, resource probably out there today. Um, I want to thank our engineer, Jeet, back on the board for the Grape Nation and everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to the Grape Nation. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. And connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.